Uh, last week, we discussed the topic of the sovereignty of God. And uh, we dealt with the tension between God having full control and at the same time, human beings being fully responsible for their actions. Uh, that's a very common discussion among our circles. Um, often in other traditions, it's not one that's center in, in, the, uh, in the discussions. Um, but it is something that I think we're all familiar with. Nonetheless, it's a, uh, often a controversial subject. But we did talk about it, and, uh, and uh, we dealt with uh, the big questions that people struggle with, like uh, how can God be all-knowing and all-sovereign, and yet we be held responsible for anything? Uh, Paul poses this same, questions, this same question in Romans 9, verse 19, when he says, You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? Yet the scriptures teach both of these realities, right? That God is completely sovereign and has determined all things. And yet we're still responsible. Uh, These two uh, points are are compatible according to scripture. We're called to live with these truths and never to fall into an unbiblical extreme that neglects either side. So it's easy to fall into a kind of Christianity that views God as dependent upon him and and his actions, right? So there's a kind of Christianity that says, uh, God is not going to move unless I do something, or God is not going to grant these things unless I do something about it, or places um, emphasis on human responsibility to the neglect and the rejection even of a sovereign God. And then the other extreme would be uh, sort of a hyper- view of sovereignty where God is in full control. I'm just going to lay back. Whatever he wills is going to happen. I'm not going to take any kind of action. And this rejects something else that the Bible clearly teaches, that man is responsible for his actions. Uh, So instead of uh, picking one extreme, accepting both is, I think, the biblical position. Um, Learning how to live and... um, practice Christian disciplines and um, living as a Christian with both of these realities. Um, Like I mentioned before, these concepts inform our spiritual practices. How do these realities inform our service and devotion to God? Well, uh, today we're going to discuss how this informs our prayers. Um, And I want us to look at Ephesians 1. So if you have your Bible, in fact, I'm going to put it up here. If you don't, Ephesians 1, verses 15 through 23. Ephesians 1, 15 through 23. And I'll I'll go ahead and read it. It says, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, Remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, 
according to the working of his great might, that he, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Amen. So Paul here is excited for the Ephesian church. Uh, There are displays there uh, of genuine faith, which is proven by their love for one another. This is is how uh, Paul can tell that this church is flourishing in the gospel. Uh, and, in, and in Paul's excitement, he says in verse 16 that he has not ceased to give thanks for them in his prayers and that they would continue to grow in the hope of the gospel. But prior to this passage that we just read, prior to verse 15, Paul expresses a specific praise to God. So before he starts talking about, you know, for this reason, because I have heard of your faith, I give thanks to God for you. Prior to that, the whole beginning of this chapter, he's praising God. Uh, if you go back a little, you can start in verse 3. Uh, let me move this here. There you go. Paul is saying here, and I put it up on the screen, uh, blessed, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And, and from that verse on, he praises God for the predestination of the saints. So prior to saying, I thank God for you, this church that is flourishing, that is loving one another, is growing in the gospel. He prefaces that with a praise to God for electing and predestining this group of people. In Paul's praise here, he's recognizing that even though everyone in the world is generally called to submit to God and to, to his son, Jesus Christ, he realizes here that not everyone is privileged in that way. In other words, not everyone responds to the gospel. This is part of Paul's theology here. He's praising God that uh, God has chose specific people, that he's predestined them for a future, for a future inheritance. He's admitting that not everyone will come to Christ, but those who have come to Christ, uh, or who will come to Christ, he praises God that he's predestined them. Uh, in Paul's praise here, again, he, he recognizes the election of God. Um, many people out there will reject God. They won't recognize Christ as the logos of God. Yet Paul, who was a studied man in the scriptures, understood the attributes of God deeply. He understood that God was not a creature or even confined to the laws of his creation, but was above all of that. And this is where he was able to develop a theology that was profound and, and deeply profound about God um, when he starts talking about how God elected and predestined. Uh, that, that's like another layer of theology that Paul was comfortable teaching on and preaching on and praising God on. He was confident that, that the God that exists, the God that is there, is not a God that submits to our commands. Right? He's not one that if we do this, then he'll do that. And if we don't do this, then he'll do that. Um, he had a deep 
uh, profound theology of, of the attributes of God. And he recognized, and you'll see as we read it together, that he was confessing and praising God for the fact that God is sovereign um, uh, and, and salvation is only possible because he is sovereign. And there Paul uh, praises God, and it's filled in this praise with language of, of predestination, election, words like guarantee, etc. And look at, verse, uh, look, at, look at these verses. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Uh, he, uh, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him, in love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. I'll stop right there just, just to point something out. This is, this is important for us to, to always keep in mind when we think about salvation. That God's favorite thing in the world wasn't to, to uh, pick a few people and he was bored so he felt like doing this. No, there's a, a deeper, bigger goal in God's plan of redemption. And the bigger goal is here. You'll see it in verse 6. To the praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed us in the beloved. God's glory is more of a priority in God than your private personal salvation or ticket to heaven, if you will. God is interested in his glory. And this doesn't, uh, this doesn't make him a lesser or less loving God. Um, he loves us more than we can imagine uh, only bec- uh, for the mere fact that he's allowing us to partake in in. Uh, this story. He's allowing us to be the recipients of his grace. Uh, That's the greatest expression of love that we can ever um, see or witness or experience. But God's glory is of first importance. That has a higher priority than making sure that people are saved. Salvation is, is part of God receiving glory in the end. And when you begin to see things that way, um, you, you, your sentiments begin to change and your mind begins to change and you too would start becoming more interested in God's glory than so much of focusing in on yourself, uh, an inward approach to Christianity. Your life now um, is more informed um, and, and more um, oriented around making sure that God gets the ultimate glory. Moving on, it says in verse 7, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he has lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. And in him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Notice there's a constant pointing to God. Uh, he's, he's breaking down the, the story of redemption, but he's constantly pointing it back to God according to the counsel of his will. Verse 12, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of what? His glory. 
constantly pointing to his glory. Verse 13, in him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. And then, of course, he ends, to the praise of his glory. To the praise of his glory. So this passage richly informs us about salvation. First of all, we see in verse 4 that God chose the Ephesian church. The credit goes to God. Uh, And us, of course, right? We can apply that to us. God has chosen us, if you're a Christian. Before the foundation of the world, he did that. And he chose us for the purpose of setting us apart for his glory, that we should be holy and blameless, as it says there. And we read in verse 5 that he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Now, verses uh, 11 through 14 tell us that since, since he's predestined us in Christ, we obtain an inheritance, which is essentially uh, eternal life in the new heavens and the new earth. Uh, and then most importantly, we, we inherit fellowship with God, unhindered. And, and the guarantee of that, is sort of like a down payment, God has, uh, you know, when you want to purchase this book and you pre-order it, you, you put the money down, it guarantees that it's going to come in. Um, he, he put down a guarantee, right? As it says in verse 13 and 14. And this guarantee is the promise of the Holy Spirit, which we all have now. And this Holy Spirit would seal us until the day that we, we acquire possession of our future inheritance. And so if in fact the Spirit of God lives in you, and there is a way to, to, to find out, there is a way to receive assurance of faith, which is actually going to serve your peace and your tranquility in Christ. Um, there is a way to find out, um, and, and the scriptures teach us how to do that. But that's another class. Um, but again, the Holy Spirit is that down payment, that, that sign that assures us that we are his, and he is ours, and we're guaranteed um, the inheritance of, of uh, the new heavens and the new earth. Again, these are wonderful truths that speak on God's sovereign election. Now, how does this inform Paul's approach to prayer? Again, this is a class on prayer uh, or Pauline prayers. How does this information inform Paul's approach to prayer uh, for the Ephesian church? Well, today I'll show you in three ways, and you'll see those three points. Um, We'll start with the first point there, if you have it in your handout. The first one says... Because God is sovereign, Paul offers thanksgiving for God's intervening sovereign grace in the lives of his readers. This is sort of a summary of what we learn in uh, verses 15 through 16. Uh, I want to look specifically at those verses, right? 15 and 16, it says, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. So first of all, Paul sees in the conversion and transformation of these people in in the Ephesian church, he sees a wonderful example of God's sovereign and gracious intervention in the lives of men and women there. This This is to say that Paul is thankful, right? He's saying, for this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you. He's giving thanks 
because he heard of their faith. He's giving thanks for their love towards all the saints. But he's giving thanks primarily because these things are happening in the Ephesian church because God has chosen the Ephesian church. God started a work that, that is now manifesting fruit. And so sovereign election and predestination is, is very much of a part of what is informing Paul uh, in his approach uh, to prayer before God. Paul is not struggling, if you will, with these concepts of God being sovereign, so technically if he's running the show, we don't have to do anything. Or he's not going the other extreme and, and is, is filled with anxiety. Like, if the Ephesian church don't get their act together and start bearing fruit, God is going to reject them or, or that sort of approach. But he's well balanced in his understanding of election and predestination and how to apply those truths in his prayer for that church. Now, I'd ask you, think about how you pray. Do you pray in a, in a manner that distrusts God and his, his uh, sovereign choices and his determination? Or when you pray, do you forget that God is sovereign? Is there a worry in you? Is the whole universe being upheld by your prayers? Are you imbalanced in that way? Well, think about that. There's another extreme to that too. How are you dealing with this, uh, this concept of sovereign election? Are you neglecting prayer? Are you using God's sovereignty as a, an excuse to not pray or to not come before the Lord? Or even to uh, pray in a way that, um, that makes it seem that God is not going to answer your prayers, that God has already chosen what he has chosen. My prayers are ineffectual. Those are imbalances in your prayer life. Yet we see Paul wasn't. He was able to properly apply, apply these concepts and, and, and pray in a manner that was effectual. This might not be the place for it. It might be put it on the parking lot for later. Sure. But how best, in light of election, in light of God's sovereignty, how best to pray for our lost friends? I, 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 I just yeah. jotted down eight names that I, I just, just Excellent. me. Yeah. Um, and some of them have heard the truth and mm -hmm. don't want a, you know, they'll talk to me about anything under the sun, but, you know, no. Yeah. We're not talking about anything spiritual. Next subject. Yeah. Yeah. What I would suggest, and um, I think the book of James gives us that good balance where, um, let, me, let me turn there. This is a good passage. Uh, let's here. And that's a great question. This particular verse doesn't necessarily deal with prayer in and of itself, but it, it uses the language of asking God, mm -hmm. right? And look at how James approaches this, this uh, process of asking God for something. I'm looking at James chapter 1, verse 5. It says here, But if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. And look at what it says in verse 6. But he must ask in faith without any doubting, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. Um, the, the, the whole point is that we ought to approach 
prayer, especially for lost souls, um, in a way that is filled with faith, trusting that the God that you're praying to can actually save the worst of sinners. Um, it, it's relying upon the attributes of God, the fact that he is all-powerful and all-knowing. Uh, there, you can, you can pray with faith, knowing that God is this God that you're praying to is a God that can actually accomplish these things. The prayer that lacks faith usually is the prayer that falls on both extremes. Um, on the one hand, if you believe that God is contingent to you and your prayers, then, you, uh, then there's an anxiety that if you don't pray in a certain way or if you don't pray often, God won't answer these prayers. It's too much of a dependence on, upon yourself, which is denying God's power. And then the other, the other extreme, which is um, recognizing that he's all sovereign and you don't have to approach him in prayer, is, is basically the same sin. You're, you're, um, you're not believing that God can answer these prayers. So although there's mystery uh, it, with uh, God's sovereignty and our human responsibility, we should not let the mystery um, cause us to be unbiblical and, and cause us to not just trust in what God is telling us to do. So what I would suggest is our prayers should be filled with faith. Um, and it's not on the basis of sovereignty or human responsibility. It's based on the character of God. And he can actually answer those prayers in his providence, in his providential um, expression of his, his determination. So I hope that helps. Yeah, my pleasure. Moving along. You see here um, in, in uh, verses 15 through 16 that Paul sees in the, the conversion and the transformation of the members in the Ephesian church, election and, and sovereignty there. He, he sees their faith um, reposes securely in the Lord Jesus Christ. Their characters have been transformed, not in a mystical fashion, but, uh, but in a real evidential way. And, and one of the ways that he can tell that this Ephesian church is really born again is their love for all the saints, as it says. But, but you notice in that prayer, Paul is tying the good things that he sees in that church with the fact that it was God doing it all along. That's why he prefaced this whole prayer with um, divine election and those concepts. Since it, is, since it is God who is working in them, Paul has not, Paul has not stopped thanking God. And he could have easily sent him a letter saying, thank you guys for representing Christ well. No, he's, he's, going, he's thanking them, and he's telling them that he's thanking God. Uh, he's saying, God, you know, thank you that this is a work that you are sovereignly doing in them. Uh, on the one sense, Paul can thank the Ephesian church directly, but if he only did that, he would be overlooking what's behind their growth. Um, he would forget that it was God who elected, predestined them, and is the first cause of all things. So, in application, uh, we should get into the habit of seeing every good thing that we experience. We should, we should get into the habit of seeing all good things as God's gracious provision. That all things, are, all things that you experience that are good should cause you to pause and say, God predestined He's allowed, he's determined that these things would be experienced by me. And I'm talking about the smallest things. I'm talking about how good the food tastes <laughs> or how, how great that drink tastes. Um, I, I'm talking about how good that fellowship was. Or uh, yesterday, I'll, I'll give you a, 
it's not a mystical experience, but a, a very a heartfelt, worshipful experience that I was feeling. Um, I was at a library and I was studying and I came out into the library and I was parked next to this other car. It looked exactly the same as my car. I almost went into that car. Um, but I noticed uh, the one thing, that car, the tires were blown off. Like they, they were, they had no air, basically. And I, I, know, I know this may be trivial, but I looked at that situation and I said, you know, what would really mess my week up right now is that I have to go and spend a lot of money to get these tires replaced, things like that. And I'm only saying that because there's been times where my car would fail or my tires would blow in like the worst possible time. And I feel bad for that individual, don't get me wrong. I don't know what his situation is like. And, and I actually stopped and prayed for that person. But I was, just, I was just thinking at that very moment that God preserved me from something like that, something small like that. And I'm thankful for it. Um, now, that may sound like something coming from a privileged person, like, oh, I'm grateful that that's not my tires. Um, but I didn't want to let that time pass and, and just me to move on without taking the time to acknowledge all the things that God is doing to preserve me and to keep me. And, and it's all his, his uh, sovereign work. Uh, so it's important to have that sort of sensibility that everything you do every day, that you go to work and, and, and you come home and, and, and you look at your children and you look at your spouse and look at your friends and look at your situation, whether if it's good or bad, really stop and think God has orchestrated this whole story and everything good that's happening is for the mere pleasure and enjoyment and glory of God. I, the food is excellent today. I, I'm so blessed to be able to sit here and eat this meal, even if it's something small. God that's right. Every time I eat uh, bacon, I'm like, wow, thank you, Lord. Um, just all the, all the things. God has given us taste buds. I mean, if, if, if God was only interested in making sure that you are kept alive, then food would probably be this oatmeal-like kind of thing where it has no taste whatsoever, and we just eat it to consume it and to receive the nutrients, and we would just live on miserably. But God has allowed for man to, to uh, cultivate these things for us to enjoy taste and to appreciate the goodness of all these things for our enjoyment and for our joy, but always to the praise of God. It's the people who enjoy things and don't praise God and forget to thank him that are the people who have hardened their hearts against them. So you were going to say something? Feel some smalls. Sure. Just remind me of the, the Matrix scene when they're eating like a porridge <laughs> yeah. thing. I was they're thinking like, that. Hey, it has all the nutrients and vitamins we need. So and yeah. that's like exactly what you're saying. We could just eat that and have to yeah. get along with it. But no. Yeah, or I can walk around with an IV. Yeah. And just, <laughs> it'd, be, <laughs> it'd be the, the, all, the all, I'm only uh, living with the things that I actually need. But God has allowed us to enjoy things and to receive it. But it was always meant to point to him, to, to show that... Um, like the uh, doxology says, uh, uh, praise God from whom all blessings flow. Everything good, everything uh, beneficial, everything beautiful comes from, from the Lord. It, it's just copies of his divine attributes. When you see something beautiful, remember that God is the, the fountain in which this beauty is uh, originally coming from. It, it's an out, 
uh, an outflow expression of God's beautiful uh, nature. So whenever you experience something good, uh, let it remind you of the goodness of God and, and how wonderful he is um, in his essence. Let's go to point number two. Because God is sovereign, Paul offers intercession that God's sovereign holy purposes in the salvation of his people may be accomplished. And this is based off of verses 17 through 19a. And this is to say that Paul is strongly passionate that God's will be accomplished always. Uh, again, I'll read the, uh, the verse or the verses 17 through 19. It says, That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the work of his great might. And this is Paul's prayer. He's, he's praying that God would accomplish what he had promised he would do in the saints whom he's predestined and chosen. And this is an example of prayer that is passionate about, what, about God doing what he said he was going to do. And the, the idea here, and, and what we can learn from this, is that Paul, knowing that God is sovereign over all things, is choosing to pray for things that God has already declared he would do. And he's passionate to see these things come to life. Just as Daniel prayed for the end of the exile, because God had promised that the exile would end, so Paul prays that Christians may grow in their knowledge of God because God has already declared his intention to, to expose his people to the glories of his grace, both now and for eternity. And so just as Christians cry out, come Jesus, come Lord quickly, precisely because they know Jesus had promised to do that, so also they pray that God would continue to the work of his sovereign purposes in those whom he's begun to do the same. In other words... When a, a prayer to the church, a prayer for the church, asking God to help them grow and help them to see um, the goodness of God and, and help them to grow in their knowledge of God, uh, is a prayer that God is a prayer based on what God had already said He would do in the saints. But Paul, what led Paul to pray that is he he's seen evidence in this community that that God had saved them, had elected them. And so he's wanting to, 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 to see more of it. He's wanting to, be, um, he's wanting to see them flourish and to, to mature in the faith. Uh, and that should be uh, an example of how we ought to pray. Uh, an example that's consistent with the sovereignty of God. That our prayers be rooted in God's promises. And that the word of God would compel us to, to pray and come before the Lord and say, God, I want to see more of this. I want to see um, my brother grow in this way. Uh, things that you know the Spirit is going to do regardless. The prayers of Paul were fueled with a spirit that wanted to see God fulfill what he had promised to fulfill. And if you look, if you look at verse 4, he, he's praying this because God has chosen us in Christ. If you look at verses 4 through 5, it's because he is in love predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ. 
And then verses eight, seven through eight, it's because God has lavished on us the riches of his grace. And it's for those reasons that Paul prays and we should pray like Paul. God's sovereign grace in our lives must serve not as a disincentive to prayer, but as an incentive to prayer, just as it is for Paul. And this is why he starts off by saying, for this reason, I do not cease to pray. And it's interesting, considering that he, in, in the first part of this chapter, he spent all that time talking about how these folks were predestined before the foundation of the world. And yet, right after that, he's compelled to pray anyway. Uh, again, it's, it's for that reason he, he um, still offers prayers on their behalf. And what exactly is it that Paul asks for? You see, Paul's prayer here is that the Ephesians might know God better. And he prays for something that he knows that God will do in them regardless. Yet Paul prays, and he prays as if prayer is a means to that very end. Paul is aware that God accomplishes these things by allowing the saints to pray. This is how God allows us to participate in his uh, redemptive plan. God accomplishes these things by allowing the saints to pray and to seek for these things at the same time. And even though we know God is the first cause of it all, God often moves through the wills of his people. Prayer is where, I would say, God's sovereignty and man's actions meet. God's sovereignty and human responsibility meet in prayer. What God has ordained for the believer often comes about when the saints approach God in prayer. So when Paul prays that the saints would know him better, he does this by asking him to give us the spirit of wisdom and revelation to the end that we would know him better. And we read in in verse 18, where it says, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. Here, Paul acknowledges in his prayer that the need for God to act if any growth is to happen, which is why he speaks about the saints of having their eyes enlightened. This has been God all along who does the work of growth in us. And prayer is simply calling out to God to do what he promised to do in us and to those who he has chosen. Whatever the Spirit reveals, and in our case, he reveals it through his word, we must have our spiritual faculties attuned to receive what God reveals by his Spirit. And Paul models this understanding by praying for both things, right? He prays that God would would reveal and that he would enable us to grasp it and to live it out. So there's a strong dependency upon God when you pray. On the one hand, you're praying for God to reveal, and on the other hand, you're asking God to enable you to receive what he has revealed in his word. Um, Again, this is why I like to say that prayer is where God's sovereignty and human responsibility meet. They look at each other face to face, if you will. This is why Paul prays uh, the way that he does. Uh, and this is why I think we ought to model that in, in, in our prayers. Praying to a sovereign God means that we learn what his will is through reading his word. And we desire his will to be accomplished, which is expressed in the spiritual act of prayer. Prayer needs the word of God and the word of God needs prayer. 
Now, in their case, maybe some of these folks didn't have the Bible. But when, when the word of God was announced, was preached, and was taught by the apostles, it required that the person who was a Christian and was, was going to pray to God, it required him to be informed by the word of God. And, and, and notice how they're dependent upon each other. You need the word to inform you on how to pray, which we see the example of the disciples asking Jesus to teach us how to pray. This is another way of saying you need God's revelation. But then you have prayer that is, that, that is important in order for you to receive God's word properly. And again, um, they feed off of each other. It's just another way of saying we need to be a people of the word and we need to be a people of prayer. Um, a, a Christian who is living and walking rightly and is, is, is in a good Stance, I guess uh, a better way to say it is a healthy Christian is one that is constantly in the word and constantly praying. And you'll notice the imbalance there when the person who prays, 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 but doesn't have the word to inform and to have that revelation from God inform his mind. His prayer often is, um, is, uh, is filled with many flaws. Uh, he's, he's oftentimes approaching God in a blasphemous way. And then the other way around, a person who is in the word, he grows in knowledge, but he's growing incorrectly. So he thinks he's growing in knowledge, but he's not actually growing in, in the right way uh, because he lacks that um, pausing and coming before the Lord in prayer. So keep that in mind. Prayer and the word is, is something that are dependent upon each other. Uh, and, and you need that uh, in order for you to be a healthy Christian. Um, finally, let's consider the last point there. Um, because God is sovereign, Paul offers a review of God's most dramatic displays of power. This is probably my favorite um, part of this passage. We're looking at 19... Oh, no, that's it there. 19 through 23. Um, and, and often when we think of God's sovereignty, what may come to mind is all the ways in which God is holding the universe by the power of his word, and that's part of it, right? The cosmos being held up in its proper order and its orbit. Nature functioning according to its order, even though we're in a fallen world. These are things that sort of display that God is, is in control. He's, he's holding all things together. We can think of God's sovereignty even in the events that are happening simultaneously throughout the world. Uh, we know that God is orchestrating all things according to his plan. Yet in verses 19 through 23, Paul is praying that the saints would grow in the knowledge of the immeasurable greatness of God's power toward us according to the working of his great might. In other words, Paul is praying that Christians would see and understand the hope that we have based on the greatness of his power that he worked in Jesus Christ. What is this power that he's talking about, that he's praying that Christians would see? We see it in verses 19 through 23. Um, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. He put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is the body, 
the fullness of him who fills all in all. What is the power that, he, that Paul is praying that we see? You see it here, number one, verse 20. It's the power exerted when Christ was raised from the dead. So Paul is praying, help them to see and to anchor their hope in the fact that Jesus was raised from the dead. The second one, another display of this power, is verse 21. The power displayed in the exalted Christ. Look at verse 21. Um, a little bit before that, it says, uh, Christ was seated, uh, seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, verse 21, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, uh, not only in this age, but also the age to come. This is the exalted Christ. So Paul is praying, let the church, the Ephesian church, root their hope in and ha have confidence in the power displayed when Jesus Christ was exalted and placed at the right hand of the Father. And the last one, uh, I would say, is verses 20 through 22 to 23. The, uh, the power exercised by Christ over everything for the church. Uh, this is to say... Uh, that he, verse 22 and 23, uh, and he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. This is talking about Jesus exercising his dominion, his authority on the throne. First of all, um, we see with the first point, uh, the power exerted when Christ was raised from the dead, verse 20. This is based on what God did in Christ. Uh, we, can, we can be confident and be assured in our future hope because God raised Christ from the dead. This was to display that Jesus Christ lived perfectly righteous on our behalf. If he sinned, he, he would have undergone penalty and, and death and corruption. But his resurrection was a sign of victory over death on our behalf. So if you've received Christ, you've also received his resurrection. Secondly, God exalted Christ by seating him in the highest places above all rule, authority, power, and dominion, not only in this age, but the age to come. And I think verse 21 is an insightful verse, because contrary to many Christian views out there, this verse is telling us that Christ is reigning, not only in the age to come, but in this very age. The very moment he was elevated and exalted and seated at the right hand of the Father, his reign began, and he, be, he, he reigns now. And then finally, we see in verses 22, 22 to 23, God's power is exercised by having Christ being head over everything through his church, which is his body, putting all things under his feet. Christ here is exercising his reign through the church's mission of preaching the gospel and making disciples uh, until the end of age when all is put under his feet. Now, these are examples of power that Paul is praying his church would see, right? Paul is praying that the church would be made aware of this power that God has displayed in Christ. Uh, that they would be encouraged with the truth that if God sovereignly chose us, he will sovereignly keep us. And it's not just word promises. And sometimes we look at it and we say, well, I can't trust people's word, so... I know God promises that if you believe in him, you'll be saved. But, you know, it's, it's hard to believe that. Well, Paul is praying that you would believe it 
not only on the basis of his promises, which should be good enough, but on the fact that Jesus rose from the dead, was exalted and, and placed in the right hand, which, which expresses his rule and dominion over all creation. And the last point, which is the fact that he's ruling right now through the church. Those are ex- powerful examples that should give you confidence that if you believe in those things, if you believe that Jesus Christ did those things, you are uh, guaranteed the eternal inheritance. Conclusion. In summary, we've seen that the sovereignty of God is meant to strengthen our trust and assurance in God. And this bleeds out in our prayers. It's not meant to discourage us in prayer and in Christian duty. We think about the sovereignty of God, it feels like it gets in the way of our Christian duty. No, if anything, it ought to strengthen our, our Christian duty. It gives, us, it gives our prayers purpose, knowing that since we pray and our prayers are rooted in the promises of God, the unchangeable sovereign God, that, that they're, they're effectual. And, and, and for me personally, what I find most attractive about this reality is that it allows us to be partakers of God's predetermined plan. Um, we, we, through prayer, we've been able to uh, be participants in how God is working all things to, to the glory of his name. And so again, we've seen how Paul exemplifies these concepts, how to believe in a sovereign God, but also pray um, in the passage that we, that we just uh, exposited. So here's, here's the charge. We should seek a heart that strongly desires that God's purposes be accomplished. We should be passionate about the things that God has promised he'd do. We should read his word often and regularly so that it informs how we approach God. And we should approach God in order for that to inform how we ought to understand God's word. Have both. That's what a healthy Christian life looks like. And we should view prayer as a means in which God uses those prayers to accomplish his purposes, which means that we're privileged to be able to participate in God's redemptive work um, as, as people who come before him and pray these petitions. Um, so those things ought to serve your encouragement. Um, any questions or comments? Yeah. I'd like to offer two things for consideration. Mm-hmm. First, I think this is a tremendous example of encouragement. First of all, the Apostle Paul not only prayed for this church, but he wrote a letter to them mm. explaining that he prayed and what he prayed. Mm. What an example for us when we have uh, fellow believers that are hurting that we can say, oh, I'm praying for you. But if we can let them know what we're praying, why we're praying. Amen how we're praying, what God's sovereign will is. That's the first point. The second point is, I know I may have mentioned this person before, but we were privileged to know a man by the name of Dr. William McDowell. And he was quite a renowned uh, reformed theologian. And uh, he actually uh, was the English editor of the New King James Bible. Extremely competent in Hebrew, Greek, even some Aramaic. Phenomenal, phenomenal man. And when he was nearing the end of his life, he prepared what he wanted to have for his uh, uh, memorial service. He asked one thing to be read, Ephesians 1. 
because there's no finer example of what he could say and his encouragement for everyone that would be there, believer or non-believer. Yeah. So I think this this is a yeah. such an incredible part Amen. of scripture and can be an example for all of us. Amen. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, it's a great, great uh, chapter there. Any other comments or thoughts? Okay. Well, thank you all. Let's, let's go ahead and pray. Our Father, we, we thank you for revealing your sovereignty to us in Scripture. We ask that you would help us to pray like Paul, where he acknowledges your hand in everything, yet still pleads for you to accomplish your purposes in the saints. Help us to, to model after that. We thank you for um, encouraging us in the promises of God as we read in this passage. Um, thank you that uh, you have looked on us and has chosen us not on the basis of what we would ever do, but uh, for your sovereign purposes, Lord. And, and this expression of love we, we um, should forever be thankful for, Lord. Um, and, and we just ask that uh, these truths would help us to increase our love for prayer. Um, that even though you're sovereign over all things, we use our, the freedom of our will with its limitations and its boundaries to, to come before you and to plead with you and to um, bring our petitions before you as your word asks us to do. Um, we desire that communion that, that we are able to have when we pray and when we are informed by your word so help us to be the type of Christian that doesn't go into the wrong extremes, but that we would acknowledge that you rule over all things and that we have been privileged to be able to come before you with our petitions, our prayer requests, and our praise reports. We thank you. Um, help us to pray and help us to be the Christians that you've called us to be according to, to Scripture. Uh, we, we thank you and we ask that your spirit would do that work in us. For we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you all.